0: wild POV use. wild, Really unconventional, but really fun and surprising. It felt surreal at times because of it.
1: I couldn't even keep track of how many different POV styles there are in this book as he's bouncing around all these different styles. And we'll talk about some that is actually a kind of spoilery, so I won't get into it until we, until we get there. But yeah, he's, he's being so playful with that. And I think because the format is fairly simple, you can do that. to episode 257 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss Paul Tremblay's 2018 novel, The Cabin at the End of the World. All right, James, so we finally get to cover something recent. I know it's not not something we get to do a lot, but I'm always excited when I get to read a book that's come out in the last five years or so. Um, So this is a 2018 novel, so pretty recent, uh, you know, a big horror novel at the time, and still, I think, and obviously going to be talked about a lot with the new movie coming out, um, which we have not seen yet. We are recording this prior to seeing the film. Our only experience with the story is through this book.
0: I've actually been avoiding uh, all marketing material as well. I think I may have seen one trailer.
1: I started watching a trailer, and then I think I stopped it because I was like, this is going to get too into too many spoilers for the book, and I want to go into the book as much as I can without knowing anything. So yeah, I, I also did that. Um, I'm excited to like maybe check one of them out now. I don't know. Maybe I won't because we're definitely seeing the movie. This is a strange book for me a little bit uh, and a strange situation. It's going to be a first time on the podcast because I kind of know Paul Tremblay. Um, I've met him a few times. Uh, I am not friends with him, it's not someone who I correspond with frequently. Um, I, you know, I follow him on Twitter and, you know, interact with his posts some. You know, he would probably know me if he saw me, but that's about it. But that's still unusual. We haven't had that situation occur yet uh, on the podcast where where there's that level of familiarity even. Um, so I, I feel a little biased somewhat because of that personal connection. But I also am a fan of his, and I have been since I read Head Full of Ghosts, which we'll talk about a little bit when we as we get into our background with the material. So I'm still trying to figure out how, how to talk about this book. Um, I'm going to try and do it as much as I can to remove myself from the bias of that, but um, it's it's going to be there somewhat. Like it, it I'm a human and it's going to be. Uh, so I guess just I just want to like full disclosure. But uh, what about you? Do you have any experience with his work? Even have you read any of his stuff, or just what you've heard from me?
0: No, mostly what I've heard from you. I think. A while ago, I started following him on Twitter because you recommended a lot of his work and I just liked his posts. And so, uh, yeah, I started following him that way. And I remember you talking about Head Full of Ghosts possibly being adapted and I was hopeful for that. Still holding out hope (laughs) that that'll happen. And then read this and and honestly um, didn't know exactly what to expect just because I I assumed that it was a little more complexity to it than your run of the mill horror.
1: Oh, we should go ahead and put out we are going to have a spoiler free section here at the start that's um, going to be pretty robust, where we talk about the book without spoiling anything as much as we can, then we'll have a clear delineation before we move into spoiler thoughts. So if you haven't read the book yet, you're safe to stick around.
0: So I basically thought that there was going to be some subversion of the genre, yeah. possibly, and, and some more going on than I thought originally. And I'm happy to say that that was the case, and, and I enjoyed myself. I would say, non-spoiler-wise, this, this book exceeded my expectations for what a book is, about a, you know, a family in a cabin in the woods yeah. and possibly some people who are coming after them, what what that could be and the ways that it, it like, you know, it's a thinker. It, it gets it gets under your skin and you have to live with it a little bit. And then yeah. just very uh, real portrayals of characters and the way that they interact and trauma and some of the other things that go on. And I was pretty blown away, for especially for this being my first piece of Paul Tremblay fiction that I read. Yeah, uh,
1: so I, it's not my first. I read uh, *Head Full of Ghosts*, which was his debut. Um, I've looked. I looked on his website, and he's since published eight books, eight novels. Um, I do believe two of those were written before he signed with a literary agent and before *Head Full of Ghosts*. But he has published them after. I think it's two two like crime novels that aren't that aren't considered horror. Um, but his main genre is horror slash sci-fi. And he has dabbled in different sub-genres within horror. And I know from my interactions with him that he is just a big fan of the genre in all of its different facets. Like he's a huge fan of The Thing, huge fan of Jaws. Um, I heard him talk about both of those films. In my version of the novel, there is a section with liner notes. Did yours have yeah, that? Yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. First off, like I, I, it was a new goal as a writer is to be able to include a section of liner notes at the end where you can just like give little tidbits and little thoughts about what you were doing and what you were going for and little details
0: you included. Yeah, show your references that you're doing and maybe some things that are pretty subtle because even mentioned in some of them, like people may not have picked up on this if I didn't mention it here. So here's. Oh, me. I
1: love that. He said um he said that he. Plays little games while he's writing with himself, or he'll like do little things, little references that he thinks like no one will probably ever pick up on this, but I'm gonna do it for fun. And I totally do that when I write, so that I really um, empathize with that. Like I, I, that's something that that makes a lot of sense to me, and it's so cool to be able to put that stuff out there in the liner notes. Um, but the reason I brought that up is he talked about how home invasion genre in within horror that subgenre is one he doesn't really like. And he had the basically gave himself a challenge to try and write that genre in a way like, OK, well, what would you do if you were to write that genre in a way that you would actually like it? So that was kind of his goal setting out. And that's why you get some of that subversion. Um, there is definitely a postmodernist element to this book um, that I would say Head Full of Ghosts also very strongly has. And I read on his Wikipedia page that he's, you know, sometimes classified as a postmodernist writer, um, was very like self-aware and aware of other things in the genre. And like the fiction itself is kind of self-aware. Um, and I love that kind of stuff. That's not going to be for everyone. So, you know, there, there's a couple things within this book that I think are going to be very divisive. And, um, if you look on the Goodreads for it, you'll see that it has a fairly middling score. And I think it's because it's so div- it is so divisive. And I think there's a couple major spots, but I can't really talk about them without spoiling stuff, so that'll be in the spoiler section. Um, but I guess preemptively I would say no going into it that this book might very much not be the kind of book you like or it might very much turn you off at some point. Um, and that's kind of a risk going into it. Um, I-, I don't know if that'll be the same in the film. I assume it kind of will be, but, you know, that to be determined, I guess. Um, but ultimately, like, I ended up really liking this book, even though part of me was, like, angry at it. Um, but I think that's appropriate. I feel like that's kind of what he wants the reader to feel. Yeah. Um, like, a little bit of frustration and anger. Yeah. But it does linger with you. You said it gets under your skin, and like I-, I was thinking about it after I finished it. And I was also just, like, so excited as the book was coming to its finale. I got a feeling that I don't get for a lot of books, good books even, don't quite elicit this sort of like joyful excitement that I was feeling while reading this. And that's how I know when I'm like a true fan of something, is at that point I'm just reading it as a fan. And I felt that way reading this book, and I felt that way reading A Head Full of Ghosts too, so... Um, There's not a lot of books that do that do that for me these days, uh, but when it does happen, it's pretty special.
0: Something you said leads to sort of expectations of of this story, right? On the cover, it tells you what it's going to be about. Yeah. The expectation going in is that it's going to be home invasion and there is a lot more to it than that. It feels like we really live with these characters for a long time. We get to know the intricacies of like, well, specifically our main characters, like what led them to this, why they have certain mannerisms, why they do certain things. And those really fleshed out characters tend to be the kind of stories that I remember and characters that I that I remember because it's not this archetypal character in any way. And these characters, I guess what I'm trying to say is they're very rich. Yeah, I think you're touching on the fact that it's a character driven story. I guess uh, part of what I'm getting at is this sort of literary, uh, more literary style story where the characters are, it, it, it's so, it feels so much, not just relatable, but it feels so much like these characters exist and that they are going through the exact same thought processes and the things that we go through. And and just the way that, I, I, without getting any spoilers, it's tough to talk about, but basically like the way that he's describing so much in detail, because we... I don't think it's a spoiler to say like the almost the entire novel takes place in a cabin. And we spend so much time with these characters in ways that
1: I think in more of a traditional horror novel, you might not get. So I was thinking about reading just like the back of the book, kind of the um, plot hook um, as we sort of and that can be our sort of basis for what we can what we can discuss, because that's also probably what's covered in most of the trailers. So I think that will give us kind of like a base ground for like what is safe to talk about. So seven-year-old Wynne and her parents, Eric and Andrew, are vacationing at a remote cabin in New Hampshire. A couple of miles from the Canadian border, far removed from the bustle of city life, cut off from the urgent hum of cell phones and from the internet, they are more than two miles away from their closest neighbors. On a summer day, as Wynne catches grasshoppers in the front yard, a stranger unexpectedly appears. Leonard is the largest man Wynne has ever seen, but he is young and friendly and with a warm smile that wins her over almost instantly. Leonard and Wynne continue to talk and play until three more strangers come down the road carrying strange, menacing objects. In a panic, Wynne tells Leonard that she must go back inside the cabin, but before she goes, her new friend tells her, None of what's going to happen is your fault. You haven't done anything wrong, but the three of you will have to make some tough decisions. I wish, with all my broken heart, you didn't have to. As Wynne sprints away to warn her parents, Leonard calls out, Your dads won't want to let us in, Wynne, but they have to. We need your help to save the world. Please. Okay, so that's the setup. That's basically all of that occurs in the first chapter, and I think all of that's in the trailer. So I think that's that's all very safe to talk about. So let's get into it a little bit. When Leonard our opening scene with the grasshoppers out in front of the cabin, um, it's kind of a slow burn scene, but very menacing having this child be approached by a stranger who is being so friendly. And it's and, and it's also like luring us in because I think uh, uh, Paul Trimley does a great job of making Leonard seem like an
0: okay dude. Seem like an okay dude, but again, playing with ex- yeah. expectations because this is so clearly a kidnapping moment where, where in another story, this child's kidnapped. I mean,
1: so many alarms are going off in your head, right?
0: right. <laughs> and there's so much tension built into this. Yeah. He does have that sort of... The, the demeanor and the the actions of somebody who is comfortable speaking to children, but it with us you know being on the side of when we think that this is super creepy and the tension that builds up and the way that they're catching these grasshoppers and trapping them and all of these trapping sort of things that are going on it's it's it's, a, really it's like, such
1: an innocuous detail, but it immediately seems important to me, like it sets off my like literary mind of like, oh well, these are these grasshoppers are metaphorical. Um, that ends up playing out even more than I thought. As we as we go into spoiler sections, I'll talk a little bit more about my like sort of grasshopper analysis. But um, yeah, from the v- jump, you you see that they're they're trapping these grasshoppers together, and they're discussing what it's going to be like for them inside this jar. And um, there's there's definitely a level of menace added there. Um, I also because I know you know who portrays. Leonard and and uh, knock at the cabin is the the changed title. I I, I couldn't help but think of of uh, Dave Bautista playing yeah, Leonard him. and so I was picturing him the whole time. His massive frame just like you know looming in the shadow over this little girl and and I'm a fan so it was it was yeah. I liked that part of it and 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 then I pictured the little girl just how she looks in the trailer too because I've seen enough images, yeah. um, but it made it very real in a cool way. Um, I guess I'll talk a little bit about how I met. Paul Tremblay, um, and then we can we can kind of finish our dis- our discussion about <laughs> this first part, and then we'll move into spoilers. Um, so, 2017, I went. I had just graduated from Seton Hill University with my master's, and I went to a ReaderCon outside of Boston. And uh, while I was at ReaderCon, so I-, I knew Paul Tremblay was going to be at ReaderCon um as well as some other authors that i know um and and and, and admire but i just read head full of ghosts in my i think my final semester at seton hill it was one of our school books like everybody in the program read it and i loved it and i remember going in and just like talking i was so excited to talk about it and i was super into it And i was kind of frustrated with some people who didn't like it (laughs) i was like you don't understand uh this book is brilliant um and I remember uh, when I saw, I was thinking about going to these different cons after I graduated, and ReaderCon was one that I wanted to try. And I saw that he was going to be there, and I was like, "Oh, that's cool. Maybe I'll get a chance to talk to him." So I was at ReaderCon. I'm at—I uh, can't remember what it was. It was some sort of like just social event at the con. They often have these just like mixers, um, and people are just gathered around. You can go order drinks at a at like a like a bar stand that's there, and then there are people mingling. And so I go get in line to get a drink, and I realize that Paul Tremblay is standing behind me in line as I'm getting up to order my to order my beverage. And I have a few moments while we're just standing there in line, and I'm like, I've always heard about this kind of thing happening, but I, this is the first time I've been in this situation. So I was like, oh, hey, are you Paul Tremblay? He says yes, and I was like, "Can I buy you a drink?" Uh, I loved your book, and I just this is a weird opportunity. I have to do this, and he was super like flattered. I thought, and he was into it. So I bought him a drink, and we we chatted, and um, I ended up hanging out a little bit with him and some of his friends at the con, um, and that was the first time I met him. Um, and then uh, fast forward to the next year, uh, there is a workshop called "In Your Right Mind" that my program puts on um, by the program I graduated from Seton Hill. Um, and the graduates of that program put on this this in your right Mind writers workshop. And he was the guest of honor in 2018. So I was like, I'm gonna go to that one. so I flew out to go to that workshop and ended up hanging out with him again. So hung out with him a couple times. I even attended a class he did. He like taught a, he taught a thing about ambiguous endings, um, which you know was super fun and go in and learn about like, how much he liked them and how he thinks about them and how he, he uh, approaches them. And, um, yeah, it was very cool to hear him talk and hear him um, talk about this book because this book was coming out right around the time of that workshop. And I wanted to get it, but you had to have pre-ordered it in order for them to guarantee that there would be enough copies. And I didn't do that. So when I went to buy the book, unfortunately, they were sold out. So I ended up buying his other book, uh, Disappearance at Devil's Rock instead. And I have that one signed by him on my shelf, which is pretty cool. But I was a little bummed that I didn't get this one, especially now that we're covering it. Uh, So I was very close to having that. Um, But anyway, um, get to just talk with him more, hear his philosophy about writing, talking about how he approaches horror and... All this cool stuff. Um, I know that he's a math teacher, still works as a math teacher to this day, which would be like one of the coolest math teachers you could ever have, I imagine. Um, <laughs> That's cool. And, uh, you know, he just likes it, I think, and just continues to do it. He talked about how Stephen King was a huge inspiration for him. And it was one of the things that I think it was the author who made him fall in love with writing. That was in the I think in the liner notes that are at the end of this book, he thanks him for that. And I know that they seem to have Developed a friendship and um, Stephen King will often talk about, you know, reading his latest novel and um, I know he gave him like a really glowing review for Head Full of Ghosts when that first came out, um, which when Stephen King shouts you out on, you know, even in a tweet, it's a massive thing, right? Like that's a huge uh, oomph you get. And uh, it seems they've continued their their friendship and um, I think he writes in a similar mode to Stephen King, uh, which is obviously like I'm a fan of Stephen King. Um, and I feel like in some ways he's the successor to King. Uh, uh, you know, obviously King has sons, you know, <laughs> who are who are writing and you know, maybe should be considered Joe Hill, like you know, like the the successor to Stephen King. But I think in many ways Paul Tremblay is like a literary successor too. Um, I don't know. I just have a lot of thoughts. I guess I'm kind of rambling. But the reaction to all that.
0: I mean, I, I can see it. I can see Stephen King reading something like this, seeing his influence. I think, and also enjoying. I, I kind of found myself in the same headspace that I often find myself in, especially nearing the end of a Stephen King novel. Um, Now, notoriously, Stephen King, people say, can't write an ending, which
1: I disagree with. He often struggles, but yeah, sometimes he nails it. I think sometimes he doesn't get enough credit for endings that he does do well. But yeah,
0: sure. But just there's a certain, I guess, zone you get into when reading that sort of horror or, or thrillers. And, and that's something I would mention about this story as well as like, I couldn't put this down. I read this in like two sessions, yeah. two reading sessions. It is shorter, you know, than, than some of the stuff we've read before, which I appreciate it for. I think the first section that I read was like over three fourths of the novel. So wow. if that's any indication, like I really enjoyed it. It's really propulsive of a story. You want to know what happens next. It all happens in the course of like a day. These characters, they're very, especially when is very lovable. Like yeah. you, you just want to know what's going to happen with this family.
1: Right. Totally agree. Uh, I felt like the writing at times gets very playful. Um, I I really enjoyed how he was playing with point of view. Throughout. Oh my gosh, I, I have this written down.
0: Wild POV, use. wild, really unconventional, but really fun and surprising. It felt surreal at times because of it.
1: I couldn't even keep track of how many different POV styles there are in this book, as he's bouncing around all these different styles. Um, and and we'll talk about some that is actually a kind of spoilery, so I won't get into it until we until we get there. But yeah, he's he's being so playful with that, and I think because the format is fairly simple, you can do that. One little bit that I don't think is a a spoiler but was from the liner notes that I want to share that I thought was so so fun is that Andrew, I believe it is, is reading a novel that's like a a recent thriller about a missing kid that he finds like so derivative. He's not not into it at all. He doesn't know why it's so popular. Um, And then in the liner notes, uh, Paul Tremblay writes that he's reading Disappearance at Devil's Rock, his former book, (laughs) and he's like everyone's a critic. And I thought that was so fun to have your own character reading your book um, and not liking it. Uh, it's a pretty, pretty baller move.
0: Like you said, that's kind of that postmodern move, right? Yeah. Is that it's to like reference. And the
1: title doesn't appear in there. So like you almost don't know that unless you read the liner notes or you're guessing that it might be that because you know the plot and it does sound similar. So fun. And that's uh, all kinds of stuff like that he's playing with. He talks about in the liner notes that um I really I really thought was fun. But yeah, don't read those until you read the book because he does spoil a lot too. <laughs> I guess I I, I would say... If you are considering reading this, um, I, I do recommend it. I think this is this book is great. Um, it is going to be divisive. One thing that I'll say is that depending on your comfort with ambiguity could be your turning point on like how you feel about this book. And if you are someone who is not comfortable with ambiguity in your in your fiction, then this may not be the book for you. Especially if you're like very adamantly against ambiguity.
0: There's no question that this is ambiguous, but I, I would say that I think there's enough to be satisfying and to sort of draw your own conclusions. It's not sort you're not left in the dark. I don't know. I guess I'm arguing for ambiguity in stories because we, I think we both are on record as liking it, but it, it's, uh, it, it gives you permission to draw your own conclusions and sort of reach back into the novel and think about what the author's intention was and say like, okay, this is what the book is about.
1: Yeah, all right. We'll have to touch back in on that in the spoiler section. But um, I think, that, yeah, hopefully that's not too spoilery. I, I never know. Um, but uh, I just, it, it also like if you're going into a book, I think, and, and you're worried about seeing so divisive, like the ratings are all over the place for this thing. So if you're wondering like, where am I gonna land? That's
0: kind of surprising. I
1: think that's I think that's what comes down to it. I think a lot of people just are very divided on how they feel about that. We'll talk about it, um, but yeah, I, I think that's about as much as we can say in our spoiler-free section. So, just overall, it sounds like you had a really good time with this book. I, I definitely did. Although, I like I said, I did have like some anger towards it that um, I even now like I, I'm okay with that because I think that was kind of intended. Okay, so we're gonna move into our spoiler section. Before we get there, though, um, I did just want to say we we released an episode on our Patreon where we covered Return to Oz. Uh, which was a bizarre 80s fantasy film. It's just
0: like this story, if you're wondering. <laughs> it's exactly like, <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's wildly different, but it was a lot of fun, yeah. And
1: I was glad because, and I don't know how many people have seen this, I assume a lot, but I hadn't, you hadn't. I Surprising number of people have been commenting that they have seen it. So I just said I had never seen it. I had barely even heard of it.
0: Yeah, with Wizard of Oz being this touchstone that everyone is kind of aware of, at least, or most people have seen, it's cool to get this other story and, and this uh, see this other version of the world. And uh, yeah, and also Walter Merch directed, it was his only feature. Uh, he's a well-known uh, editor mm-hmm. and sound mixer in the industry.
1: We talk about all of this in the episode. Um, if that sounds interesting to you, we would love to have your support over on patreon.com slash ink to film. Um, check that out in all of our other bonus episodes. Okay, time to move into the spoiler section. We are going to spoil everything. (laughs) So don't get mad at us. (laughs) Even the ending, right?
0: Are we going to go chronologically?
1: We'll bounce around a little bit.
0: I want to at least be able to reference the ending because there's a lot of stuff that leads up to that.
1: Yeah. So the rest of the book, um, just to talk about plot, like it's a lot of just like negotiations between the invaders, right? There's these four invaders. They take them hostage inside their cabin. They break in. Um, They're not able to keep them out. And then um, it's it's Eric and Andrew fighting them, negotiating with them, being worried about when. Um, and then the first major uh, <laughs> act of violence occurs with them all beating one of their own to death. And that's Redmond who um, we learn later may have been, may or may not have been lying about his identity, but um, they beat Redmond to death in front of them. They put this like mask on him. And, um, it's a shocking moment of violence and it's, it's, um,
0: I will say up to this point, the book had sort of lulled me into this false sense of security where I felt like, okay, so they've, they've broken in, they clearly don't want to, they don't intend harm on the family. Right. There's a certain objective, which we can talk about now, uh, that they're trying to accomplish. They're not going to hurt anybody, but then just shockingly they start just
1: bashing this guy's brains. Yeah. So, so the premise is, and the setup is that they're like, you have to sacrifice, one of your own willingly to avert the apocalypse. And they give a bunch of like vague prophetic details that they say will play out if they don't choose. Of course, Eric and Andrew refuse. And when they do, that's when they just kill Redman, which kind of comes out of nowhere. It's so shocking and uh, so brutal how it's described that you're like, Oh shit. Okay. This book is, and that's one of the thing I love about Paul Tremblay is like, he's such a nice dude. And, um, you wouldn't expect it from him, but you read his books and like, there's a definitely a level of like, you don't know where the hell he's going to go. And it keeps you on your toes because like anything is possible. And I love that feeling in a book. I've talked about this in other things we've covered, but like, I love feeling like the the author I'm reading is a little bit deranged and you <laughs> just don't know what they're going to put you through. Um, and you definitely get that feeling from him. And I love it.
0: Like I said, it really caught me off guard. It wasn't something that I felt like the story was capable of kind of Oh, but it is (laughs) oh but it is but it kind of made me think okay we're gonna get this sort of tense battling of wits between these people and hopefully they outsmart them and escape and sort of your typical they've been tied up and and escape and best the the antagonist situation but then there's this other wrinkle where they're talking about a prophecy and the way that this and like you said very graphically like his head like caves in and they put these masks on their heads and in the liner notes as well, I think he describes how, um, you know, masks are very famous in horror, and his mask is sort of devoid of any character. Yeah. It's like takes it's, away their humanity. And, and in doing that, they put this mask on. It seems like some sort of ritual that they need to do. They've all decided on, and then yeah, they just bash this guy's brains in, roll them. I think they roll them up in a carpet or something and throw them out of the house, or they just pick them up and throw them
1: yeah, out. Yeah, he's just he's just like out on the deck rotting for the rest of the book. Um, yeah. But, you know, and still, he's, like, all of these characters end up being so important, and, and um, his death becomes very important because after he dies, um, Andrew reveals that he was a victim of a hate crime where he got attacked in a bar, um, and he has this realization that Redmond is actually the guy who attacked him, like, 20 years ago, and he just has changed a lot of the years, and he looks a little different, but he realizes all of a sudden that that's him. We never get any proof that that is true. The ambiguity starts now. That's where the ambiguity sets in. Yep. A, a lot of characters we're supposed to
0: either take them at face value, or, or like if we if we are on their side, we kind of are willing to go as far as to believe their perspective. And there's some other things that come that come about. Like Eric has been concussed. Yes. And so this is a character that and. In a cool way, and and I loved in the in the liner notes as well how he notes a lot of concussions are unrealistic in storytelling. Yep. this is a realistic depiction
1: of of a concussed person, and in the ways that that affects in the story. Importantly, and- Eric sees like a figure in light at one point when they're when they're killing um, uh, Redmond. He sees this like light form into a person. And then it's unclear whether or not that's a hallucination because he's got this concussion. There's also all this stuff that happens with flies later on, where he sees flies that no one else seems to see. Maybe concussion. Andrew thinks this is the person who accosted him. He said that he's
0: gained like fifty pounds. He's almost unrecognizable, but yep. somehow he figures it out. Yeah. And we're and this is where this is this story I should have mentioned in the before the spoiler started. It's incredibly moving because there are some depictions of. Um, not just violence and overcoming those violences, but also like familial strife that this family has to go through because of who they are and, and yeah. what they represent to the society. And the way they, they-, they face a lot of prejudice. And yeah, exactly.
1: It also really sets them up to be distrustful of these. Like, I mean, you already would be, but they have this built in. Like, they're gonna distrust some some people who are spouting semi-religious. Beliefs, you know, like the and and they're they're gonna already assume that this is some sort of hate motivated crime occurring, right? And so that's where Andrew's POV is. It's like, do we believe that he
0: definitely one hundred percent believes this is the person who accosted him, or is he bringing some of that? built-up wall that he has because he's had to deal with these sort of things? Is he sort of trying to to
1: rationalize why these people are here and attacking them? Right. Is he projecting it? Um, and so we begin with the ambiguity, right? So let's talk a little bit more. So things start occurring on the TV. Um, they turn it to a channel. And I think the first thing that occurs is you hear about this earthquake and then this earthquake sets off another earthquake uh in the pacific northwest one that anybody who lives around where i do is very familiar with and the idea of this mega quake that people have been talking about at some point is going to come
0: it's very scary i didn't realize that you i don't know if you mentioned this earlier but paul tremplin is all is
1: he also from your area is he he's a new england new england writer yeah okay so he just happened to write about this area yep (laughs) <laughs> that's cool <laughs> and and talking about Cannon Beach uh, which uh, I know you've been to you came out to visit and we went out to I've been out there many times um, beautiful scenic place. And um, yeah, the idea of imagining this tidal wave coming in is very scary because it could happen.
0: And it is, as the story talks about, the site where they did a
1: lot of the shooting for, for that specific scene in The Goonies, which I was super excited about when we went there. Oh, speaking, before we leave it behind, speaking about cool little references, I love that the Lenny, first off, uh, sorry, Leonard is based off of the character Lenny of A Mice and Men. And then also his interaction with Win outside at the start of the book is a reference to the whale um frankenstein that we covered and the scene where frankenstein meets the little girl and throws her in the water which we discussed like he's specifically referencing that and like even having seen that movie i would have never made that connection i don't think but um now that he says that i can see it and like i just love that he's being playful like that and doing these little references um it's so fun
0: Right. And he also mentions in the in the liner notes, uh, Lord of the Flies, which I could see some of that as well uh, in the in this story. But yeah, I would have never noticed the Frankenstein bit other than, you know,
1: big person with a little kid. But pretty cool. Right. Um, and, and then and then seven grasshoppers, um, they talk about the number seven being important or being magical or lucky. Um, and then they, there are, um, each of their names have seven letters. Like there's all these little games that he's playing that like, I don't even, I would have even noticed seven characters, seven characters. Yeah. And this feels like, it feels like cheat codes for us to
0: have these liners. <laughs> right, this bit. is the kind of stuff that normally we have to pull out of the material. And, and I love that we can just sort of reference all of this and know for a it's fact. It's cool
1: though, because he doesn't talk about everything and we could we we can talk about some of the stuff that he doesn't address that I think is very interesting to discuss, but um, it does kind of get a lot of stuff out on the table. Like here's all the stuff on the table. I am doing all this stuff. He talks about the color yellow and how um, it means death or it symbolizes death and how there's a yellow lamp that every time a character interacts with that character dies like f- shortly after and that's something that like i don't know how you could ever pick up on that i mean someone could yeah. i'm sure but like, well i mean
0: pick people picked up on the oranges in the godfather right like, um, famously, you could so but
1: uh, you could. especially in a movie i feel like it's a little easier than in a book to pick up pick up on some sort of clue like that because this is just a lamp that people interact with but it does it does come back to be, you know, true throughout the throughout the book. Yeah. Um, so I wanted
0: to talk more about this religious messaging that's happening here. And and you know, I don't know Paul Tremblay's religious background, but it it got to talk about, play with, and think about some of the the religious because one of the characters, I believe it's Eric Uh, Is a churchgoer at times and they're both obviously gay men probably liberal people in general Yeah, but there's like an ideological difference with a couple of the things that that you wouldn't necessarily think of liberals Which is there's like the gun that's brought up. Andrew
1: has a gun Eric doesn't like that he has a gun. Yeah.
0: Yep. And Eric goes to church. Yeah.
1: And the gun is in the car, locked away in the car, which we we learn early on, and of course in a very Chekhov gun kind of way. Um, but it's a literal gun. Um, you know it's coming back, and it does.
0: I mean, it, it's just interesting the way that he's playing with religion, and I think in the I think it was in the liner notes he talks about this the four horsemen of the apocalypse yep. and these sort of apocalyptic events that are happening. And
1: I love that Andrew because he's a teacher is like very aware of this. He's like, Oh, I can, I can tell that they're playing with this, but I'm not going to let on that. I know this because I don't want to like give them any fuel. Um, but he is even picking up on this stuff, um, which I thought was very clever, right? And that's kind of that postmodern thing. You have like a professor who's able to analyze the literature of the moment <laughs> in a way, like the story of the moment. Um, there was, a,
0: I can't remember the exact line. I really wish I could. So there's this moment where Andrew is being, you know, tied up or something. And he, they, they talk about something and he references a book or he says, oh, I love that book or something like that. And, and Eric, we're Th- in Eric's POV and Eric's like, that's why he loves this man is that, even in these like extreme situations, he still can't get away from the thing that he loves. And I just found that to be
1: very yeah. Relatable. Oh, I know what that was. It was, they were referencing a Tim O'Brien novel and uh, Leonard was saying how he didn't like it. And Andrew was like defending the book
0: to him. Yeah, <laughs> which I found that to be
1: super relatable, right? Like yeah. I think- And I love Tim O'Brien, by the way, so that would totally be me. <laughs> I haven't read that particular book, um, but I do love Tim O'Brien as an author, so... <laughs> Yeah. So to, to, I, I just thought that was amazing little detail that I, I found a lot of uh, connection in. So, uh, uh, okay. So who dies next? I'm trying to remember. So the next person who dies is, is it, is it when, um, or does one of the women die first? One of the women dies first because,
0: uh, her blood is all over the place when she's That's trying right. to. So
1: it's cause, cause, uh, Andrew goes to get the gun. The next, it's like the following morning, Eric goes, Andrew goes to get the gun. He's able to get it out of the trunk. Um, one of the women is, is um, coming and trying to, like, kind of poke him. Sabrina's trying to poke him. He ends up shooting at her, but she runs away. And then he goes back inside, and he interrupts the the sort of uh, what's going on inside with Eric and, and Leonard and, and Wynn. And um, the woman inside, who I think is Adrian, tries to take the gun from him, and he shoots her and kills her. Yeah, and so she dies next. And um, Leonard puts the mask on her, I believe, because like, there's always a moment where like they put the mask on the person after the fact. And then also it triggers um, it seems to trigger another event um, as we see they find uh, Eric is convinced to turn the television on by Leonard who keeps telling him to turn it on.
0: This is super fascinating. So so up to this point. There's a lot of ambiguity in, in terms of is there another presence at four? What what is motivating these people? Who is telling them what to do? What did what did Eric see possibly? And then we keep getting the povs of some of the characters that are the intruders, and they're sort of moving without yeah their, without realizing it or without they're
1: their, almost being compelled or in some sort of trance-like state at times. And then we get Eric
0: doing the same thing. And
1: of course, yeah, he is the one who is a believer. And so he's more um, willing to believe that something is going on and maybe there is something to this. And he turns on the television and then we get this – we hear about the bird flu. But then Andrew, I think, rightfully points out throughout, right? Like he talked about the earthquake thing and he's like, that earthquake happened four hours ago, well before um, they killed Redmond so they knew about it before they even came out to the cabin, this other, this other earthquake had happened. So it just happened to set off this other one, but like that was going to happen. And now they're just kind of manipulating an event to be like, see, we told you. And then similarly with this, there's this like discussion about like, is this pre-recorded? And then also he had been hearing about this flu for a while. There's like a couple different ways he's trying to kind of discredit it. And also like this had to have been going on for a long time. It can't be something that just happened, which all of that does seem true. But at the same time, they turn on the TV and they hear about this bird flu that's killing all these people. Um, it does seem to sort of fulfill this prophecy of like, well, you're, you're, it, as long as you continue to not fulfill the prophecy, more of these disasters are going to roll out. And I don't know how, like, if each of these tragedies
0: line up perfectly with the four horsemen of the apocalypse, but this is this would be considered the famine, I would, you know, I think, or, or I guess the plague I feel like I've seen different depictions of the four horsemen because I'm I, I, when I looked it up earlier. There's conquest, war, famine, and death. But I
1: swear I could have swore there was plague in there at one point. Well, I think but. pest isn't pestilence one. I, I, I'm not sure. You know, that's not not something I remember. Like, I'm a very failed uh, religious person who is now agnostic, and I and I haven't gone back to relearn a lot of it. All I know is like good omen style four horsemen. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the interesting thing, right? Like,
0: I think each of us had a religious sort of um, journey that we ended. Uh, it seemed like we're both agnostic. And so that that the way that I've talked about this in the past, and I, specifically with Good Omens, the way that there is sort of a built-in audience to respond to religious, specifically Christianity in America um, and, you know, across the world. But, but the ways that that's like, it builds in a certain amount of like anxiety and tension and... And like a certain, it's almost like the Greek mythology. The way that people in their storytelling reference that for for you know centuries now, um, the we re, we still reference that as it's something that some believe in, some do not. We, we all the baggage that comes along with that we can we can implant into the story, and it and it carries a lot of weight. So you know whether you're a believer or not, this being important to the story makes it so that throughout we think about you know, the religious, If is this God? Is this the apocalypse? Is this, you know, the end of the world and what those reasons would be and, and how the characters are having to possibly deal with that. Um, I think one of the more fascinating things is, is the way that these characters come together through the, through the novel remains as ambiguous as possible so that you could argue that it, it is just cultists.
1: We learned that they met each other on an internet forum, which as soon as you hear that, I think Andrew gets rightfully very upset. And, um, yeah, it's these people who have been having these visions and they end up coming together with a few other like minds and discussing their apocalyptic visions and then um they are they 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 discuss this mission they've been given. Leonard even says like some of these ideas might have come from Redmond and there's this implication that Redmond if he is who Andrew thinks he is may have supplied the identities of Andrew and Eric and may, that may be why they were targeted. Whereas Leonard and the rest of them were all under the impression that this was a completely random, um, mission to these, to this family that was chosen for some reason beyond their understanding, but not because, you know, Redmond was targeting them. Um, but there's this implication that maybe he did. Um, and that's that ambiguity again of like, yeah, what's real and what's not. So, uh, yes, we, we see... Um, there's also an ambiguity of is something supernatural happening or not Yeah. Um, throughout this. And that's something that is uh, present in Head Full of Ghosts as well. And I, I really loved about that book. It, at, at times, this felt like the setup for a Stephen
0: King story where you'll get the implication that something somebody's being influenced by some force. But rather than doing the Stephen King thing and having the reveal and the defeat at the end of the story, the story doesn't go that
1: way. Stephen King usually he plays with that ambiguity early, but then there's a reveal that there is sure. a supernatural entity and it can be fought, um, whether or not they end up winning against it. And I feel like they usually do in King books, but not always. Um, you never really get a sense that like the supernatural thing was, was a, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It's like, no, it is. It just takes a little while for the like characters to get there. Um, but that's not true in Tremblay's fiction. Um, it really seems like he loves operating in this place where even at the end, you're unsure what, was happening supernatural or not. Um, and and that, there's definitely some of that going on here, a lot of that going on here. Um, so next, uh, we got to talk about Wynne's death. I already sort of mentioned it earlier. This is one of, I think, a th- a three things, I'll say, that that can be very, very divisive in this book. One of them is the ambiguity, which we've already talked about all the way through the end. Another one is the death of when the death of a child, and the death of a child that you are made to care for. This is a moment that a lot of people will will DNF a book. They will rage quit and they will go on Goodreads and give it one star. <laughs> uh, th- this is a moment that a lot of people are not going to be able to get past or even if they do finish it are not going to be able to feel like it was worth it um, and are just going to get mad. And I'm not here to tell anyone they're wrong for that. Like Everybody has their own feelings about what they're willing to read. Um, but you know he goes there here and this in a, in a way that makes this book extremely dark. Um, it's, it's a very, yeah. very dark book and Wynn is killed accidentally and there's wrestle, uh, it's Andrew and, and Leonard are wrestling with the gun and the gun goes off. Leonard like squeezes his hand, but it seems to be like everything's kind of an accident and when just gets shot accidentally and dies.
0: Like I said before, extremely lovable character. You, you get to know her as a person. Some of my favorite parts are Wen's POVs, um, when she's sort of still trying to figure the world out and why people are hateful towards her and her family i feel like that was some she's clearly very intelligent 6 year old i think or uh, i think in she that might range. have been 8 year old 8 yeah that sounds right so very intelligent relying on her family and her parents and then you see
1: this Tremblay is a father too so you know some people might say like oh a parent couldn't write this like he
0: did yeah and and this moment of like total utter, I guess you would say failure because they weren't able to protect her. And and even Leonard talks about how he's like, I told her nothing would happen to her. He and promised can, her nothing was going to happen to you, her. And you can tell that he's even torn up about it, which gives some humanity to the people who are breaking into their house. And,
1: and, and it does go back to like Leonard still kind of seems like a decent guy, which makes him very frightening in that way because there's like a meta conversation about how even otherwise good people can get caught up in magical thinking and this sort of compulsion surrounding religion and like purpose. And, and when you, when you give yourself over to what you view as something larger than yourself and like a higher purpose, how your own personal morality and ethics start to get eroded, right. And, and can fall away. And that's what happens to Leonard here. Um, even as we don't know whether or not he has given himself over to something that to something that is real.
0: Yeah, that that's where a lot of this book plays with some of the social current events that are going on in the world, right? And we get this Very idea on, of right? people on, but even even just like, um, you know, rabid right wing Trump supporters or which
1: I guess would be one and the same. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or also just like like doomsday cults and like stuff like that, that like even more fringe where it's a very small select group of people who believe something so wild like doomsday cults in general believe that the earth is going to end at a certain time. And they that you have to hear about these suicide events that occur. And when these suicide events occur. There is no, like he, he even talks about this in the book, like they're all going to die because they're sacrificing themselves. So they don't have to live with being wrong. They've set up a situation where they can never find out that they were wrong. Right. And that's what you got all the people drinking the Kool-Aid and dying in these cults. Like they don't ever find out that they didn't go to the comet because they're dead. Even the ideologies, like I, I when we get
0: to the end here of of eric and and andrew are pitted against each other even though they're and and that sort of infighting that i think is the commentary being made even on the more liberal side where the you know guns being an issue that some liberals disagree with on either side and you know it's a hot button issue regardless of your political affiliation but um that and then also religion is something else that i think a lot of people struggle with and deal with and, and um you know are involved in and you know, there I, I know liberal people who are extremely religious. So sure. it is, it is interesting to see how this is engaging with a lot of the things that I feel that Paul Tremblay may have been thinking of in 2018 or 2017.
1: Yeah. Important to note this is all before the pandemic too. And, and a lot of wild shit that occurred <laughs> in the intervening yeah, years. Right. I want to talk a little bit about that gun. So in a microcosm, you're looking at this as like a a, a discussion about having a gun. Right. And, Andrew wants the gun for protection. He doesn't have access to it, but he ends up getting it in this moment, and it seems like this lifeline of like the way he's going to be able to save the family. And in some ways, it plays out that he's able to get some manner of freedom at the end through the use of the gun, but inarguably, Wynn dies because of him having a gun, which was which was the worry that Eric had. Of like, we're not going to be a family that has a gun in the house. And they had to have a talk with with Wynn about the gun, right? And like, the worry is you're going to have a gun there. And the most likely person to get shot by a gun when someone has it is themselves or someone in their family. It's like by far most likely person to, to be killed by a gun someone buys is, is someone they, you know, either either themselves or someone in their family. Yeah, I mean it's a big topic, and and I think I think Paul Tremblay is not coming down one way or another. Like he shows that like the gun is also useful in this moment. Like he's able to get some manner of control, but I think the you know including the fact that Wen dies from it. Very firmly says that he is conflicted about whether or not it's a good thing to have this gun around,
0: and, and they get into the safety of it and the way that like they are two gay men in a society that that often is prejudiced against that, and the way that they may be targeted and how you know that protection angle, that fear that I do think a lot of people you know
1: yeah. lean into get guns to for for yeah. per, personal protection and all that. Yeah, sure. Um, and you know, as soon as there was the mention of the gun, of course, as a reader, I'm like, oh yeah, you need to get that gun. You know what I mean? Like you need to get that. Ability to defend yourself. So I was cheering for it to happen, even though it eventually is going to lead to the death of Wynn.
0: Right. And just to, to come back to the death of Wynn, devastating moment, uh, just, and, and the grief that the characters go
1: through. I kept, I kept expecting it to not be real. Like she was yeah. still going to be alive. It was going to have just like winged her. Like I did not think she was dead, but she's dead. Brutal.
0: And then, and then the, one of the major things is that that didn't work for
1: the for the sacrifice because they have to
0: willingly kill one of their,
1: which own. is also bullshit. Which like they point out, they're like, why wouldn't that count? And it's like, oh, because it wasn't willing. Who says? Like, who determined that rule? Like, why is this that a thing?
0: Ghostly light creature. Yeah. apparently. and they
1: don't know. They're they just they just believe it to be true, but they have no answers. These these people. Right. And I love that. So one of the point of views we get towards the end is we switch into Adrian's point of view, and she's the one who actually kills Leonard. Leonard dies, and I, I, I kind of expected him to last a little bit more towards the end, but it ends up being Adrian, who does. But in her point of view, I love that we get her simultaneously doubting everything, but also believing it. She's able to hold both things in her mind in a way that like I think is so true for people in these situations where like they're so pot committed. Like she's so like committed to this thing. She's like, I still believe it. And yet part of me sees how much bullshit it is. Part of me can't can't ignore the implication of Redmond having lied about who he is, even though I have no proof. There's like all this stuff where she like has to has to interrogate it at the same time as still believing it.
0: She's willing to like go to the police and help them find the truck and to get out of here and all these other things and, and yet at the at the end like to, to jump ahead we'll we'll come back a little bit but she she basically like loses control of her body and like runs off and goes and finds a gun that she didn't know was there
1: well also unclear how much of it's in control because she's points the gun on herself and is it's sort of saying like I have to believe like she's still believing what's happening and yet um It's so it's so weird. Like she's even I think she's mid sentence when she pulls the trigger, which makes it feel like it was unexpected, which makes it seem like something else pulled the trigger and not her.
0: Totally. Her arm was robotic or something like that, I think they even said. Described in this way, yeah. 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 I just love the way that this is playing with you, you know, we both have come on here and talked about how like do we believe in ghosts, do we believe in demons and all this other stuff? And most no. That's the answer is no. But but so in this situation I come down on the story being like radicals and but but there's enough there
1: based on the concussion and based on some other things that all build the up news reports we also see a news report where a bunch of a uh, bunch of planes are crashing simultaneously it seems like seven are confirmed but then also there's implications that maybe more are are falling um which you know uh eric takes to be confirmation that this is maybe real and andrew still says like this happened over the course of time where it couldn't have been because of anything that we did here. They had to have, get that they got a shot from a helicopter of like a, a crash in the ocean. He's like, there's no way that was happening live. And we had just, you know, that person had just, like Leonard had just died. So that couldn't have caused it. Like, and he's like being very rational about it. But also you can see why Eric sees it and says like, they said the sky were, was going to fall, and like, look what we saw on TV.
0: Their whole exchange at the end, we'll definitely have to talk about. But w- to go back to the when stuff, I think that there's the, you know, people talk about, uh, you, you talked about how people might check out with the when stuff. And I think that the the premise
1: of this uh, more like rage quit <laughs> than check quit, out. Sure. But yeah.
0: But the premise of this story, and, and I find this to be the most interesting way that I was able to, to dig into it is the the cabin at the end of the world right and it's like this this whole story is about these people saying the world is going to end and then these 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 this couple confronting it with their child and their child dies and in many ways that child was their world so you could see it as
1: their world ends when when dies their world
0: did end And then going forward, they kept being told like, oh, these tragedies are going to happen, all these things. And you're thinking like, how is a couple dealing with this grief and how are they going to go on? Because to me right away, I was like, man, even even some of the things they were doing seemed like they're while they may have been on autopilot, seemed like they were still pretty with it. In comparison to what I would expect, but I think it's that, that fight or flight and they're trying to just get out of there. And nearing the end of the story, we get Eric is pretty much fully bought in to the idea that this is a, a, some sort of supernatural force. And Andrew is just pleading. And this is the, the moving, heartbreaking part of the whole story is that these people who are so similar, they're married, they know each other inside and out, have been pushed to the brink by people who by society, I think you can say. The society has pushed these two people to infighting, basically. And they're they're so ideologically close, but there's a couple things that are keeping them from being on the same page. And so Eric is fully bought in, and he has a concussion, and he's about to kill himself to, to
1: sacrifice. To-, to fulfill the sacrifice, because he is now a believer at that point. So let me pause for a moment and talk about point of views. So I think this is the other thing that might be incredibly divisive for people because people have very strong opinions about point of views in books it's not something i mean i feel like we touch on it a little bit but you will get passionate passionate opinions about point of views and choice for point of views in books and this book goes all over the place we have first person we have third person we have omniscient we have present and past tense we have this final chapter is written from a first-person plural present tense, which is very tricky, and I kind of don't know how he pulled it off. It's so weird. Let me read. I have a uh, a paragraph that I wanted to read from towards the end of the book that I think sort of encapsulates what this is like. So this is during this negotiation we're talking about where they're they're trying to... um, Eric is pointing the gun at himself. Our faces are only inches apart. We breathe each other's breaths, blink each other's blinks, we squeeze our hands together. The rain traces the lines of our expressions, those characters of the most complex language. So this is what I'm talking about. Like he's, he's saying we are, right? He does also then kind of bounce into each one. He then kind of goes into Eric. He kind of goes into Andrew. And Paul Tremblay in the liner notes even says he's kind of including the reader in the we. Like it's all of us are caught up in this moment. If he, he says like, if I may, um, that's so bold that's a that's a big thing to try and when I was saying divisive points in the book even doing this present tense style some people really hate it um there is a lot of description of movement um that I was a little divided on just to be like the one thing I will admit was like there's a lot of characters moving around written in present tense and sometimes it felt a little bit too much like stage direction like we're just moving people's limbs and moving people around a space. And I understand why it's important, like, for what's going on in the book. But there's a lot of it. And there's a lot of that. And, and written in present tense, it feels very weird. Um I thought that that may have been a choice to evoke some of this
0: supernatural motor function kind of going on through it because it doesn't feel... Like what you'd normally expect of these sort of scenes, and I thought that that maybe you had something to do with a supernatural influence.
1: You know, it's interesting, man. Like, I, as someone like I just wrote a novel that I am currently trying to get an agent with, and I went through a round of critiques with a bunch of uh, fellow writers, and there's so much he's doing in this book that you get torn apart for if you were to even try. <laughs> and it shows to me that this is the kind of book. Also, like, I just don't think he could have. This could have been his debut. There's too much bold, ambitious things that I do like to see that once you're an established author, you can try. He is at a point in his career he's willing to and able to try stuff like this. Um, But yeah, if you're a first time author, like I'm not saying it's impossible, but this is going to be very hard to convince anyone that you know what you're doing and that you're doing it for a good reason, even as it sort of breaks convention in so many different ways. Um, Yeah. Yeah,
0: we had the the moment that I want to talk about with POV two, where we're in Sabrina's POV and she keeps saying, I tell you, Andrew and Eric and the, the different ways that right before this, like long paragraph of description of she's kind of telling her life and how she ended up where she is here. Um, and I found that to be kind of playful at a point. Even though it's in the in the midst of this like really serious discussion, she's sort of you know all these people are dead and, and and all this crazy stuff has happened, and I wanted to get your take on like what that meant other than maybe having fun with the the format of of starting each of these explanations with, you know, I tell you
1: Andrew and Eric or I you know addressing it to them. You mean over and over again? That's a good question. Um, I guess I took it to be like it, it seems kind of like a tactic that. Religious people, like religious speakers, use it's like that. It's like a forced connection. I continue to say your name so that you you continue mm-hmm. to like fix your attention on me, and maybe man- okay. maybe like manifesting or um, trying to to build some sort of connection that may not be there or maybe artificial. It's it's interesting, man. There's so much going on. Like at the end, I also felt like the characters were starting to lose their minds. Like there was a little bit of madness creeping into even the language. Yeah. As we see characters going on like long, rambling thoughts, where they're they're interspersing the current moment with memories. And, like, uh, Eric starts talking about, like, all this stuff that happened to him in the past. And it's this long, rambling sentence that starts in the present and goes all the way into the past and, like, comes all the way back around. Um, and it starts to feel unhinged, like he's not even in the moment. And um, his mind is just all over the place. And, and he's sort of out of control. And, and the, the narrative starts to feel out of control at the end as we get these storm clouds coming in. And it's described in ways that kind of break reality. Um, And we don't know whether or not this is just a regular storm crowd because the way it's being described feels very apocalyptic. It's like very doomsday. Um, But is that just Eric's like uh, projection um, as he's sort of seeing things that he is like wants to see but is also afraid to see?
0: And not even necessarily in Eric's POV but, but the end of the novel is sort of one way or another I think telling us that like the apocalypse for these this couple has happened. Right like the end of the world is happening and it is crumbling around them. Um, but let's that brings us back to their their the pleading in the moment with Andrew and Eric and with the gun pointed at Eric and Andrew grabs his wrist and he's like I'm not going to take the gun from you but point it at me because I think you should kill me and think about what it would do to me if you killed yourself right. here. And and what they, you know, that that really emotional moment that they go through together and I couldn't help but draw a parallel with something that we both watched uh, which is the new episode of The Last right. of Us?
1: Which we, yeah, we we can't spoil that because that would be a outside spoiler. <laughs> I won't say anything
0: other than this, but it, it ha- there were some parallels that made me feel similar ways. It's it, funny
1: how that ha- that episode came out the week that we're covering this. There's like weird similarities yeah. in some ways. Yeah.
0: Thinking about what this this couple has been through and what society's put them through and what they will continue to go through and
1: what these characters put them through. Yeah, and, and
0: then ultimately with eric dropping the gun and then walking off into the apocalypse together like what what the messaging that is there of neither of them killing each other or themselves and they're moving on into what could potentially be the end of the world
1: well the last line of the book and he even says in the liner notes so that this one it's like one of two most important lines in the book is we will go on and um he ended the book in a place where he felt like it was a moment of defiance it was characters saying even if this is real we are choosing to Say fuck it! That this world is too bleak, this God is too bleak and dark to force this upon us. Mm-hmm. And how could we ever be expected to make this decision? We refuse to make it, um, even if it is real. Which again, we don't get. We don't find out. the The end of the book does not reveal whether or not the world is actually ending, or if this is all sort of in these characters' heads, or a third option. Some sort of manipulation by a magical outside force, which I think is definitely, to my read of it, is something that's going on here. What that force is very up for debate, um, but I think that's another option.
0: And I thought this was going to be one of your divisive things, one of the three things, uh, because this ends in such an ambiguous way, with with no, uh, you know, answer either way, if it was supernatural or not. Yeah,
1: and that was one. And I, I was kind of lumping that in with just ambiguity in general, because ambiguity is definitely throughout the story. But it comes to a head at the end where you don't get an answer. And I think this is the moment, the culmination, right? And it's also at the time where people are going to be most thinking about leaving a review. Often, like, they get, like, you know, an app will even ask them for a review right after you finish the book. And you've just read an ending where you probably were hoping to get an answer. I think it's very natural to want to know, is this real or not? And you get to the end, and you are told, basically up to you to decide. And like so many people hate that, that I guarantee you people gave very negative reviews to this book because of that ending.
0: And again, this is one that like right away, I kind of I I didn't get it right away. I think the ending like I I understood where he was coming from some of the allegory. But then I sat and thought about it and this idea of we will go on and what it does mean to what is it saying in our world? What is, the, what is the correlation here? And I think it is just that, like, in the face of what society and the world throws at you, you can choose to not play the game and you can choose to be defiant and you can choose to live on. And they're clearly going to both be living with extreme grief. And, like I said, their world is as it was, is over. It's, it's ended. And whether, so if the, you
1: know, to them, it, it almost doesn't matter if the world crumbles around them. It's also about the nature of truth. I think, and and we talk about living in a post-truth society, something people say, um, and we know that there are people who buy into things that they believe to be true, and then they see the world through the lens they've created, and everything fits into that narrative. There's no way to like, get them out of it. And so you can also look at it as in a sense of like, whether or not it's true, like it was true for those four characters who invaded, and it is now true for, for Eric and Andrew that their world has ended with the death of Wynn. And whether or not the next step of truth is there, it's more about like, do they submit to this version of truth that has been foisted upon them? Or are they willing to reject that truth and sort of seek a real truth at the end, which is what they ultimately do. Like they will find out We don't get to know because that's not what I think Paul Tremblay is interested in discussing. Like he could have decided at the end to tell you, oh, and then the reveal is it's all it was all true. The world really is ending and they should have made their decision. Or he could have said it all wasn't true. Isn't that wild? It was all made up. I think both of those responses is not as interesting as what he
0: ultimately did, right? And you mentioned earlier, like, this idea that, like, these people killing themselves, they'll never know the truth. I think that's that's a big deal as well, right? Like, these characters chose to see, like, okay, we'll see if it is the end of the world or not, and if it isn't, then we will live on and deal with our grief yeah. and all these things.
1: They, that- de- they determined their own truth, and then they make it happen. Um, so this kind of comes back to what I wanted to discuss at the end here is this thing is now going to get adapted for the screen and we got M. Night Shyamalan in to do his thing with it. We don't know what it's going to look like. Cause we haven't seen him do a novel a novel adaptation. We've seen him adapt avatar, the last airbender, but let's set that aside. He's never done an adaptation like this. He's known for twist endings. Is he going to be, is he going to be able to resist the temptation to come down on one side of the other about whether or not it was all real. Or is he going to have thought up like a way, like a third way of revealing some level of truth to this? Or is he going to be willing to write in or to include a truly ambiguous ending to this film? I kind of don't think he is. I think he's going to come down one way or another. And I don't know if it's going to be as satisfying as I find the end of this novel to actually be personally.
0: Yeah, we'll see. I think with the visual medium and what film has been for such a long time, it would be incredibly difficult to come down as ambiguous as this. I think there is some level of ambiguity that he'll probably leave in the film. But I think that people are going to want to... If someone sees, that's another thing. You can be in the point of view of a character in a novel. If if you are the character's POV, like the, the film camera camera is a pov itself and and it's for the audience. If we see some see something supernatural on screen, if we see some sort of entity, so you almost have to like decide whether you're going to lean into it. You can do
1: it. a thing where you like you do like a really tight shot of like someone's face and then you see something that clearly that character's seeing and then I think there could still be the implication of like maybe this character if we know that Eric has a concussion and then we see Eric see something you know what I mean? And then especially if like the the flies, other people don't see the flies, but we know Eric has seen the flies. Like there's some stuff. Yeah, you, you can try to do that. something like that.
0: When I watch this movie, I'm I'm assuming that I'm going to see supernatural things happening in the, in the film. And I think nearing the end, we're going to be left with, yes, there was supernatural things happening, but also was it
1: as all-encompassing and powerful as what this made it out to be? Probably not. So, but. so in my mind, a third option I kept coming to is not just that the world really ended or the world didn't and this was all made up, is the manipulation of an outside force. That there is a magical entity, be it a devil, demon, weirdness of some kind, an un- unnameable figure, that is as when is is sort of capturing grasshoppers at the beginning and putting them in a jar and studying them and seeing what they do, you could say that there's some sort of outside force that doesn't give a shit about people, but is like curious to see what they'll do if it sets up the scenario. And that force is magical enough to where it could be generating these um, news broadcasts. To where they they might not even be true. It might just be something that's like a hallucination that is being caused by this outside force. There's also like a bunch of wind blowing open doors and like presences being felt and light, this yellow light keeps coming in. And there's a lot of implications that there's some, I think there's some hints to this, that it was interesting that he doesn't talk about a lot of this in the liner notes. I think this is truly stuff that he wanted to leave up to the, to the reader. I could see M. Night Shyamalan coming in and wanting to give an answer that leans on that. And maybe there will be some sort of reveal of an entity at the end of the adaptation.
0: Yeah. And I think that's the most interesting because for me, the thing that in the story that I wanted to latch on to more that I, you know, after the story was over, I I sort of. Um, was grateful that it didn't go this way, but there that the idea of an entity like a Stephen King esque entity affecting the plot and then ultimately them either overcoming it by outsmarting it or not following its rules of what it needed to do, and then and then um, you know ending up out there, uh, you know, going up against whether it's the end of the world or not. We're we're moving on. Um, yeah, I think I do think it'll be more of a Stephen King film if i was to, like if
1: that angle of like an entity I, when i when i finished reading this and i was thinking about like where would i trust this like i feel like it needs to be in an artsy a24 film adaptation yeah to get this style ending right and that's not what this is this is a very big budget a very big marketing budget at least like this is a this is a it seems like it's going to be a very big film by a director who's sort of infamous at this point but also is infamous for like doing shit that has been very divisive with with audiences so he's also willing to piss off audiences clearly
0: I would love to see him really lean into it so I also I feel like I'm starting to become a M. Night Shyamalan defender since he had a period where I can't defend some of the films and I don't think he wants to either but He's since, like, built up some goodwill with, with, a, with some movies that I actually enjoyed. Sure. Quite a few in a row. And so, in, in doing things that other people won't in, in ways... Wait, and wait,
1: pursue, which ones? which ones did you enjoy? Because I, I haven't seen a lot of his newer stuff.
0: The Visit. I th- believe it's called The Visit. There's, like, a grandmother with her kids. And then The Beach, I think it's called. Not The Beach. It's called, like... It's the aging one. Is it called Old? It's called Old. Yeah, it's called yeah. Old. So, so. And whether you think those movies are amazing or not, he's still, I think, a a filmmaker that's making films that I want to see. So so I am excited to see you know it would be really cool if he just decided to say fuck it and really stay true to the to the film to the ambiguous ending to the source material here to the to the novel and, and do it ambiguous ending and and really go for that sort of not anti blockbuster style but like you said like like sort of more of an indie feel to the film which i think he had to kind of build back up his reputa- reputation in lower budget films to get to this point so i'd love to see if this is like shyamalan 2.0 and he he can he can bring in something really fun i and, think
1: there's going to be a temptation on his part To put his spin on it and make it his own and differentiate it from the book, and so what that what form that takes is going to come is going to like so massively affect how I feel about this movie. I can already feel it. It's like, what what does he choose to do at the end, and how do I feel about it? And like, I I will fully admit, like I said, I was a little bit angry with Paul Tremblay at the end of this book for not giving me the answer. But I sat with it and I thought about why, and I thought about how do I feel about this thing, knowing that, and like I had been in his in his like talk where he was talking about how much he loves ambiguous endings. So I kind of saw it coming. I was like, I don't think we're gonna get an answer at the end, are we? But I was still kind of annoyed when we didn't. Um, and then I just remember him talking about how like how he likes. He likes that it lingers on in the mind of people. Everybody has to sort of decide for themselves how they feel about it. And then it moves the like answer. The, the, the answer to this book is not about whether or not the world ends. It's about what these two characters do in this situation where the truth they've had foisted upon them, they have to decide whether or not to engage with it. And whether or not the ultimate truth lines up with their decision is kind of beside the point isn't it more interesting to focus on their choice with absent knowing what whether or not it was like for me that's more interesting and I think for Paul Tremblay it's more interesting but I don't know if that will be for everybody and part of
0: it for me is we've seen that story before and it's it's fun to see something a little different and ultimately it's it's more brave and bold I think for the characters to make a decision like that and not know you know take a step into the unknown yeah. and and potentially face down the apocalypse face down a god face down a demon whatever it is they they they're possibly walking into that and they know that but they'll do it together which i think is you know a really powerful
1: statement wow so this was such a cool book to talk about it was so much meatier than i thought like i one of the one of my like hesitancies to read this book was always that i found headful of ghosts so fascinating and it's ambiguity and it was such an interesting take on the exorcism story style story um and i i really hope that they get that that gets made into a film so that we can revisit it because i think it's a a spectacular book um and i was a little bit like how is he going to do a home invasion and make it as interesting as he was able to pull off with with the other book and like i think he did it here i want to read his other books now um he's got he's got a few more a pallbearer's club and Survivor's song that have come out um he's disappearance at devil's rock which i have and i haven't read yet but i should um you know because i'm just i'm i'm such a fan i really like this style of writing and i like what he's doing um so yeah i had a lot of fun with this book and i'm excited to see the the adaptation we get for better or worse um and talk about it with you uh which we will do next week
0: yeah, I am excited about the film. That's another thing that I, I would say. Walking away from this, like I'm excited to see what the possibility is here. Like from the mind of M. Night Shyamalan, we'll, we'll get to see. <laughs> we'll it.
1: get to see his 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 take on it, right? Um, uh, you know, and, and I just want to say, like, this is one where I would love to hear from our listeners. Like, how did you feel about this book? If you read it, you know, like how how did you feel about the ambiguity? Um, did you feel cheated? And and um. Does our discussion of it change anything for you? Um, I'd love to hear from you. Let us know. Uh, you can email us at inktofilm at gmail.com or reach out to us on any of our social media platforms. We're at InktoFilm on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. Uh, we're all over the place.
0: Yeah, and if you like this episode and want to support the podcast, please leave a rating or review on whatever platform you're listening on. It helps to you know build up the word out there and uh, show our podcast to some new people.
1: Yeah, I've noticed that we, we finally uh, have, I think, over 25 ratings on Spotify, which is something that like is fairly new to the ratings game. So I'd love to see that number continue to grow. Um, also, if you wanted to support the podcast, we do have a Patreon. We mentioned it earlier, patreon.com slash ink to film. Bonus episodes on there, including our one on Return to Oz that just came out. All right. So that's going to be it for Paul Tremblay. Uh, I'm so excited we finally got to cover him. It wasn't Head Full of Ghosts, which we've, we've been talking about for years. So hopefully we can return to that if that if that book actually gets made into a film. Um, but this was a fun one. And and uh, I hope that there are also going to be more instances in the future where an adaptation is getting made from an author who I've actually met. Um, it was kind of fun to try and figure out how to talk about that um, because it's definitely kind of strange and surreal like Fonda Lee, you know like I really hope Jade City ends up getting made into an adaptation because it would be so fun to cover but also very weird because of how well I know her so it, it would be really interesting to to get into this again in the future and also that means that like modern authors are getting adapted which is something that I think should be happening more um, and I'm excited about so uh, this was a cool one and until next time keep adapting